I'm Linor Moudou. Welcome to Health Chat. Malawi has launched an emergency national polio immunization campaign following the detection of its first case in 30 years. The diagnosis of a four-year-old girl with wild polio virus in February is the first case in Africa in five years. The case has raised alarm as the continent was declared free of wild polio in 2020. Authorities are now rushing to inoculate nearly 3 million children under age 5. Polio is a highly infectious disease that spreads mainly through contamination by fishes and can cause paralysis and death. There is no cure, but experts say vaccination brought the world close to ending the wild form of the disease. For more insights, I spoke with Dr. Janet Kaita, World Health Organization country representative in Malawi. Take a listen. We still have the one case of the wild poliovirus type 1. There's no other cases, but we are strengthening surveillance, doing active case search, ensuring all health workers know what to look out for should they suspect polio that they know exactly what it is that they should do. It is a concern, but it also is a good thing that the Malawi surveillance system was able to pick up this case. It is a setback, but what it does mean is that we have to work with urgency to ensure that we get ahead of the virus. What does it tell us about containing polio? Is it even something that is possible in the long term? It is absolutely possible. In fact, uh, we were coming so close because just two countries across the world still have the, the wild polio virus. We do know what to do, which is to very quickly mount a vaccination campaign and really strengthen our surveillance systems and also really make sure that the routine immunization system is strengthened. So as you mentioned, Malawi is embarking on the mass polio vaccination drive. What are the main pillars of uh, this campaign? The main thing, because it is targeting all children under five everywhere in Malawi and across the border, because this is not a one country effort. Based on the risk assessment, we absolutely know that it has to go beyond Malawi borders. For Malawi, for instance, we know we're targeting 2.9 million children. At the lowest administrative level, a clear knowledge of how to reach them, so a good understanding of the terrain. This is done through a process called micro-planning, through which every local administration knows how they're going to reach these children. The strategy is house to house. It's also looking broadly and seeing other children immunized, is any of them paralyzed or show any signs of polio because it's both immunized children, but also undertake active case search. It is going to be done in four rounds, a month apart after each round understand very clearly how we have performed, are there any missed children, where are the missed children, and if necessary, mount what are called mop-up campaigns. How do we ensure that we reach the last mile? Because not every place is accessible. How do we make sure this happens? The oldest, most well-planned public health program is the immunization program. And already it works with a strategy that's called reaching every child. So if you live in Sanjay district, for instance, the local administration, the hardest to reach place, 
the community health worker in Malawi called a health surveillance assistant, uh, assistant can tell you how to get to those hardest to reach children. So the monitoring processes between rounds will be able to tell us whether we've reached every child or not and how to correct this. So how do we engage the community to participate? You can knock at somebody's door, but if they don't want you to uh, vaccinate their child, are you going to force um, them? So there's been very, very widespread public awareness building. We've been very lucky in Malawi that His Excellency himself has been speaking very directly to parents. The, the Public Affairs Committee of Parliament is mobilized. The Interreligious Council is mobilized. They're busy issuing calls to, to their congregation. Rotarians are helping. Every district has a health education officer. The community radios are publicly airing these announcements. So there's active community engagement because the purpose is to remove all of the barriers that we know that stand between a mother, a caretaker, immunizing her, her child. Two years ago, the continent was certified polio-free, and then now here we are. What lessons mm. can be learned here? I need to be very clear that this uh, wild polio virus type 1 in Malawi does not take away from that certification. Okay. But we do have to demonstrate within the next six months, one year, that we're ahead, we've stopped the spread of the virus. The positive is that we are working with an expert team of, it's called the Global Polio Eradication Initiative that supports all countries if you have any kind of polio outbreak. And the micro-planning processes that accompany these campaigns have been tried and tested and tested again and working with a foundation of what is actually quite a good immunization system. So we're not starting from scratch and we do have additional help. We do have four rounds and with every single round we learn lessons. We know who we're missing. We plan to do better. Dr. Janet Kayita, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That was Dr. Janet Kayita, World Health Organization country representative in Malawi. We turn now to bullying. The American Psychological Association defines bullying as a form of aggressive behavior in which someone intentionally and repeatedly causes another person injury or discomfort. Bullying comes in various forms, from name-calling and physical abuse to shaming on social media. A report published in 2019 by UNESCO reveals that physical bullying is prevalent in many regions. The exception is North America and Europe, where psychological bullying is most common. School violence and bullying are major problems worldwide. Children who are perceived as different in any way are more likely to be bullied. Let's go to Mozambique to meet a young albino woman in Maputo whose condition made her the target of bullying as a child. Sergio Nambi has the story. According to UNICEF, one in three children in the world between 13 and 15 years old has experienced bullying at school, which can lead to lifelong trauma and have a significant effect on mental health. Teresa, who preferred not to use her real name, still hasn't recovered from the traumatic memories of the bullying she suffered during her childhood. Some of the other kids wouldn't even sit with me. Teresa has albinism, a genetic disorder where there is a little or no pigment melanin production, resulting in white skin and hair. 
people with this condition often also suffer from vision impairment. When we told the teacher that I couldn't see so he could put me in the front seat, he always complained and said he wasn't to blame for my difficulty seeing. School wasn't the only place she faced bullying. For people to poke at you and touch you, saying mean things about you, that's very bad. And sometimes really lowers our self-esteem. She says that living in a society with such bad prejudice, she's constantly afraid. I end up being afraid to go out alone. I don't go out at all sometimes because I feel so much shame. When I pass by a place, people will talk. Despite not being able to forget about the sad memories of her childhood, Teresa chose to make a difference and make the world a better place, where differences are not a reason for prejudice. Today, she's an activist in the Albino Support Association. I'm helping other albino people who have been bullied and still experience it with families who cannot accept living with children with albinism. UNICEF data shows that Sub-Saharan Africa is the region with the highest prevalence of bullying, with an incidence rate of 48%. The most frequent type of bullying in the region is physical aggression followed by rape, and the third is psychological. Nur Bakayoko is a psychologist, psychotherapist and CEO of SciTrader, an online consultation and therapy platform based in Côte d'Ivoire. He discusses bullying and what can be done. What is bullying? It is a form of repeated violence with the aim of harming or degrading a person, which affects or disturbs the serenity of an individual. To understand bullying, we have to dig deeper at the parental educational level because it depends on the type of parent we have. If we have, for example, an abusive parent or an authoritarian parent or a pernicious or passive parent, you see the consequences of this upbringing on the child and they will repeat it in social circles or at school or even when he or she grows up. The child will tend to copy what they experience towards others. But it's not an excuse. Besides that, there is also the social environment which affects the individual. So individuals will behave in such a way as to harass others. And then there are people with disabilities. Disability not only physical, but often motor disability, for example, dyslexia, or a learning disability like autism, ADD, or ADHD. They're often victims of bullying. In school and even in the workplace, there are two forms of bullying, vertical and horizontal. The vertical form of bullying may be perpetrated by a boss, school officials, or even from the parents. The horizontal form is between employees, students, or siblings. The dominant person will try to impose his authority through acts of bullying. Now, with school bullying, it is a group that is harassing others because there is also the notion of humiliating the person. At the family level, there is pressure such as parental pressure on the child to be always successful and have good grades. There are many consequences. Among young people and students, they might experience school phobia, school failure, or just drop out of school altogether. Also, we have the development of delinquency. It can also lead to mood disorders. 
the person can develop depression and all related pathologies. At the family level, the same things will happen. Additionally, the person will develop what is called the feeling of abandonment and the feeling of rejection. If bullying is at school, the first thing to do is to contact the school authorities. When it is at work, you must notify the proper labor agencies. When it is at the family level, it is important to negotiate, maybe bring another parent or another adult to talk to the parents to understand the situation. But whatever the case might be, it is critical to consult with an expert for the healing and recovery process. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It is time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including U.S. President Joe Biden warned of the potential for Russia to carry out cyber attacks against U.S. interests or deploy biological or chemical weapons in Ukraine as Russia's Ukrainian invasion nears the one-month point. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Welcome back to Health Chat. Kenya has ramped up its efforts to control the twin challenges of the coronavirus and malaria by introducing locally made testing kits for the two diseases. Kenya's Medical Research Institute, Kemri, says the kits offer quicker detection and will soon be exported to the region. Brenda Molina reports from Nairobi. Scientists at the Kenya Medical Research Institute, Kemri, have been working steadily since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic to come up with locally produced testing kits to help the country fight both coronavirus transmission and the endemic malaria disease. That journey has now borne fruit as Kenya becomes the first country in the region to produce testing kits that are designed with local conditions in mind for both diseases. We have a kit that is, um, I would say, stable in such environment, that is accurate, um, and being a locally produced product that will be cheaper. And as you mentioned, something that will not require a lot of skills to use. So a health worker, a community health worker somewhere in Western country can open that porch and uh, do the tests in a very simple and a quick way. Each year in Kenya, malaria causes about 3.5 million infections and 10,700 fatalities, making it among the leading causes of death in the country. The spread of COVID-19 placed an additional burden on the healthcare system, a situation made worse by the lack of testing kits and vaccines compared to developed countries. The invention of low-cost early detection testing kits for both COVID-19 and malaria will be a game-changer for Kenya and Africa, says medical expert Dr. Willis Ahwale. Diagnosis of any disease is the entry point towards prevention and control. If you are not able to diagnose a disease, you will first not know even what the disease is and will not know what measures to put in 
and you will not know at what point of control or uh, elimination that you'll be at. The Camry inventions will now help the country and the region get better results, says Camry team members. And then we will employ this kit to test whether you have COVID or not. You as a patient we will give you a negative or positive reaction. But the doctor will give them in much more detail. For example, we'll be able to tell them, we'll be able to tell your physician how much of the virus you have. Is it too much? Is it too low? Are you in the shedding phases? Are you in the beginning stages? So that that can also inform the treatment they give you. The Camry COVID and malaria rapid test kits will save Kenya money, an estimated $32 million or 3.6 billion Kenyan shillings alone for malaria kits that would otherwise have been imported. The money saved will be redirected to other health intervention programs, says Kenya's health ministry, as a country seeks to export this technology to other countries in the continent. Brenda Mulinya for VON News, Nairobi. African health groups have warned that the COVID pandemic has led to a rise in drug and alcohol abuse on the continent, but a gap in data is making it hard to monitor. In South Africa, a Soweto-based nonprofit is scrambling to help youth to stay clean and sober. Linda Givetesh reports from Johannesburg. Substance abuse, particularly alcohol consumption, has been on the rise in Africa for years, according to the World Health Organization. The coronavirus pandemic that resulted in job losses and school closures has now amplified the problem. This children's charity in Soweto says as many as 10 young people contact them daily suffering from addiction. During the uh, lockdowns, they used to go and drink and some they were left in the houses alone, the parents are at work and they start having the house parties and introduced to, to alcohol, end up into crystal meth, which is very common around here, especially with school children. While Ikacheng monitors the rise of addiction in young people they're helping, national statistics on drug and alcohol abuse are sorely lacking. We normally get the statistics for COVID, we get the statistics for HIV, but we will never had any statistics for, for, for a, a drugs and substance. And I think if we can have that plan, the government can have that plan and then start funding the organizations that are working with drugs and substance so that they fight it as they are fighting for HIV and AIDS, as they are fighting for COVID. It's not just South Africa lacking data on substance abuse, but the continent as a whole. We may not count the exact numbers in each and every country. We know we have a problem. Um, we also know that the services are inadequate. That one we know for a fact. Very often the alcohol treatment centers in the government facilities are underfunded. But I think if we were to begin by investing resources into building up the services, then we would be able to collect the data. She says investing in prevention would also be beneficial and less costly than treating addiction later on. Ikakeng's caregivers, like Nomali Monoreng, look for warning signs among the children they support. She knows them firsthand, having struggled with addiction herself. Sometimes we need to start with parents. Most of children don't, we don't know how to, uh, to, to talk about their feelings, we don't know how to express, you know. Children need to, 
to be to be uh, taken care in in all, all, all of, of of your east life in all areas like touching having the conversation even if it's deep even if it's uncomfortable you need to give the child the chance to talk for those looking to get clean the organization refers them to support groups that help people transition in and out of rehab they're trying to offer skills training as well so recoveries can find jobs and a purpose where you find people haggling, they don't do nothing with their lives. That's one of those things that causes us because of the mind is playing around. You, you started thinking too much, you don't have a job, you don't have anything to do, and then suddenly you see yourself going back to your old ways. For these youth, getting clean has been the first step. But experts say they'll need opportunities and jobs to keep them hope and keep them out of trouble in the long run. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. March 22nd marks the 29th annual World Water Day. This year's focus is groundwater, which provides fresh water to much of the world. Michelle Quinn Under the reports, soil, moving slowly through rock layers and inside aquifers, groundwater quietly coexists with us. It is the primary drinking water source for half of the world and a source of water for irrigating crops. And it's in trouble. The theme of this year's World Water Day, a UN Observance Day, is groundwater, its importance and the threats it faces. Elizabeth Doherty is a water expert and runs an organization called Holy H2O, a nonprofit. She spoke to VOA over Zoom. Groundwater is a really um, fascinating and frankly uh, much under-discussed um, element of our um, water cycle. As rain or snow seeps through the ground, it becomes groundwater, often clean and stored in the earth. Groundwater can be a backup source of water during times of drought when lakes and rivers dry up. Josue Medellin Ezwara is a water expert at the University of California at Merced. He spoke to VOA over Zoom. So groundwater is kind of the buffer uh, for many uh, irrigation uh, um, uh, places in the, in, the, in the world to um, uh, the, uh, substitute for this lost uh, surface water during droughts. Environmental advocates are concerned that the world's biggest groundwater aquifers are being depleted faster than they are being replenished, and that can lead to other issues. Again, Elizabeth Doherty. So that the ground starts to uh, deplete or, or sink. And you can't refill that. Like you can't repump that full of water. Once there's subsidence, you've lost that capacity for water storage. Groundwater is also threatened by pollution and mismanagement. Again, Professor Medellin Azawara. And in many cases, the contamination that we see in, um, in, in groundwater is the product of uh, things that were um, that happened decades back. Environmental advocates say people should ask where their water comes from and push their elected officials to include water management in setting policies for future growth. Kimberly Shonick is the Verde River project manager for the Nature Conservancy in Arizona. She spoke to VOA over Zoom. We need to make sure we're looking at the whole system and not just one piece of it. With the world's population expected to keep growing, experts say that better understanding and managing of the planet's groundwater may be key to our future survival. 
Michelle Quinn, BOA News. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It is time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. During this pandemic, the World Health Organization and Africa Center for Disease Control say if you have a fever, a cough, or have trouble breathing, you should stay at home and contact a healthcare facility. For more information, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa CDC. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest health news. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Welcome back to Health Chat. Two decades of drought in the western United States has pushed the nation's second largest reservoir to record lows. Lake Powell in the arid southwest is in danger of dropping too low for turbines in the reservoir's dam to produce electricity that helps power millions of homes. It's part of a worsening picture for water supplies in the American West linked to climate change. VOA's Steve Baragona has more. Arizona's Glen Canyon Dam delivers hydroelectric power to 5 million customers in seven states. But that clean, renewable electricity is under threat water levels are dangerously low after more than 20 years of drought. A drought sounds like that means we'll get over it. We're not going to get over this. This is the way, this is climate change in action. The warming climate is making the arid American West even drier. And it's shrinking the most important water source in the West, the Colorado River. Without this water supply, this regular, dependable, secure water supply, uh, the West would not have developed. Major cities, including Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and San Diego, drink from the Colorado. It sustains around 40 million people in all. And it irrigates more than 2 million hectares of farmland. So it's a multi-billion dollar economic engine uh, that is becoming less and less reliable. We thought this water was going to be here, and, and it's increasingly not. Water experts predicted that climate change would stress the river. What we didn't see coming was how fast it was going to decline. And that's that's what uh, that's the alarm bells that are going off right now. Arizona farmers took their first ever water supply cuts last year. Agriculture uses about 70 percent of the river's water. Farmers are under increasing pressure from growing cities that demand more water. It's a source of friction between urban and rural areas. Cities would simply buy out a farming community's water supply and then take that water and say, we're creating more economic value with it in the city, but that doesn't make any difference to the people who are living in those rural communities and see their livelihood go away. Many farms are getting more water efficient to lower their demands. Cities are also trying to make more efficient use of water. In many cities, uh, despite tremendous economic and population growth, they're using less water than they did 20 and 30 years ago. So what we're seeing in a lot of these cities is this conservation ethic. So that's been a major shift. But it's not enough. The reservoirs keep dropping and weather forecasters predict another dry year. As climate change deepens and western cities keep growing, experts say even bigger changes are needed, and soon. Steve Barragona, VOA News. 
health chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying health chat. I'm your host, Linoch Mudu in Washington with producer Dan Brown. Until next time, take care, stay safe and strive to make every day a healthy day. in the public interest from VOA Africa. The World Health Organization and Africa Center for Disease Control say we all can help fight the global pandemic by frequently washing our hands with soap and water or using hand sanitizers. For more information on protecting yourself and others, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa Center for Disease Control. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA's Sonny Young, host of the Sunny Side of Sports. Right here, Mondays through Fridays at 16.30 and 18.30 UTC for an action-packed 30-minute program of African, American, and international sports highlights. Hello, this is James Barton, Managing Editor and host of VOA's Daybreak Africa show. Join us Monday through Friday at 03, 04, 05, and 0600 hours UTC as we bring you the latest Africa news, features, and sports. You can also be a part of Daybreak Africa through our mail segment by sending your comments to daybreakafrica at voanews.com. Or you can call us on 001-202-205-9942. And when you hear the Voice of America identification, press the number 25 to leave us your message. That's Daybreak Africa at 03, 04, 05, and 0600 hours UTC right here on VOA Africa.